Welcome to the episode. I want to thank you for joining me. I'm Nadia Felsch, anti-diet nutritionist and certified intuitive eating counselor. In this podcast, we explore the practical aspects of leaving the diet mentality behind and finding your own food and body freedom. So at any given point in time, I would say that a large proportion of the humans that I'm supporting identify as neurodivergent, so particularly ADHD or attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. I also support folks with other neuro flavors, including OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder, autism, and complex PTSD or post-traumatic stress disorder. If you are newer to these terms and you would like to understand more potentially before you dive further into this episode, I've included a brilliant resource, a glossary, I guess, of sorts, that was actually shared with me by my guest in this episode following a webinar of hers that I attended in 2022 on autistic women's health. So in this episode, I'll be diving into neurodivergency and eating, specifically ADHD, and I have the privilege and absolute pleasure of being joined in this exploration by Annie Crow. Annie is a neurodiversity and disability consultant, autistic empowerment coach, and founder of Neuroaccessibility. She's also the host of her own podcast called The Princess and the Pea. Love that. In this episode, Annie and I do cover a lot, and she kindly shares so much of her own lived experience navigating eating and neurodivergency and the relevant parallels and intersections which are critical and fascinating to explore with disability and with diet culture. So we dive into something that really grinds my gears, ADHD hacking, as it's called. That's actually where we kick off. We cover how Annie approaches both ADHD and just generally neurodiversity, both for herself, but also in her work supporting others and hint, not as a flaw or something to cure. We talk about how diagnosis for her, for Annie, led to her understanding so much more of herself. We talk about the difference between interventions and accessibility when it comes to ADHD and neurodiversity, and critically, how deficits are societal and maybe not so much about being inherent to the ADHD experience. We definitely cover a critical area, which is the crossover of eating disorders and neurodivergency. And then kind of dig into more of the specifics, a really big topic. Is it binging? Is it dopamine chasing? Or is there actually so much more than that? And then we have the critical intersection of where ADHD and neurodivergency generally intersect with diet culture, with healthism, with ableism, with anti-fatness. Yes, we cannot hide from them. And how healthcare, when we seek help, can actually uphold all of this through diagnosis and through support. Annie shares her thoughts on her own experience with ADHD meds and the impact that can have on eating and what she wants you to hear if you are someone struggling with ADHD and eating. Is there like a whole genre of ADHD, like bros, really? I think there's a lot of men. Mm -hmm. Want to talk about all the ways to hack? That's oh, big. that's not just men, but yeah, it's it's definitely a big thing for guys. Yeah, but there's even females in the space. Um, and yeah, that's something I'm really passionate about because a part of my work with autism and ADHD um, identity and advocacy is in basically not having that attitude and and being accepting of your differences and learning ways to support them and not hack them or overcome them. That's just not my jam at all. It's a very big thing in our space, um, especially ADHD, less in autism. And actually I've had ADHD advocates say that they hate that about ADHD is that autism, it's like they just accept that you're autistic and ADHD, they're like, let's hack it. Let's fix it. I mean, I'm just maybe can we just start there why do you why do you yeah. think there is more acceptance like absolutely what? well I think I think there's a thousand reasons <laughs> but um I I think a lot of it is that ADHD being mostly about executive functioning differences so problems and struggles with things like working memory, time blindness, distractibility, focus, attention, blah, 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 organizing, prioritizing. Um, they seem so tangible and they go hand in hand with like the productivity space. Mm-hmm. So I think people, they, they hear that and they think, well, these have a thousand solutions. There's literally an industry on productivity, right? 
So we might we must be able to just adapt them for dopamine-seeking brains or whatever you want to call them, um, ADHD is, and we'll be able to fix it and help them. But the reality is, is that that rarely works. And even when it does, I would argue that it's not sustainable and it has consequences. Right. So even if you find someone who's like hacked their ADHD and upset their lives up, I would ask, what does their life actually look like and have, how long have they sustained it? Because in hacking your ADHD, is it that you're actually fixing it or like putting, like overcoming it? Or is it actually that you're putting things in place in your environment to allow for your differences in thinking? Because that's my jam. That's what I am trying to advocate and help people understand is that your autistic ADHD, whatever identity isn't you being wrong or needing to be fixed. The best thing that you can do in terms of getting a diagnosis is that diagnosis can empower you if you want one. It's not always accessible and privilege is a part of that. But um, the best thing about it is just having the ability to advocate for yourself, articulate your needs and have adjustments and accommodations made in all settings from work to healthcare, to education, um, to your own relationships. Like even last night, my husband got home late from work and ordered a pizza and it came like so late. <laughs> I think it was after 10. We're a neurodivergent household. Um, so we, we understand each other quite well, but we have different flavors of neurodivergence. And, um, <laughs> I totally forgot that the pizza was coming right. and the dog started to bark um, and I am very sensitive to noise and so I immediately kind of freaked out and my husband's approach to it, so the guy who gave him the pizza forgot his drink and so my husband was like, oh, where's the Coke? <laughs> um, whatever. And so he went back to the car to get it. He'd just forgotten and my partner went outside to chase him thinking if I can get the Coke from him faster, I'll stop the dog's barking, the dog barking sooner because I know Annie's distressed, but I freaked out and was like, where are you going? <laughs> like, no, 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 don't leave. Cause then he'll shut the door and the dog will get louder. Mm. And even though it might end sooner, that louder is even worse. And right. so for me, I, what I wanted him to do was wait for the guy to bring the drink back. And in that time, help calm the dog down and tell him it's okay. Cause that's generally what he needs because I was just completely frozen and ended up having a meltdown, which I have less often these days because I know how to set up my environment to support my my brain and my nervous system. Um, but it was just interesting because we still have this ongoing learning process. Like I've been married, I think, nine years now <laughs> uh, and I'm with him for, God, 14, like since early um, we're like same same nine and fourteen. There you go. Oh my goodness! But we're still learning stuff about each other all the time, and we're still having to communicate these things. So afterwards, um, we sat down and I said this would have helped. Yeah, debriefed, and that's very much a simple act of self advocacy. It's saying this is what I need in this moment. I wasn't coping. You don't even necessarily have to break down why you weren't coping. You can if you want, but sometimes it's not super easy to pinpoint why especially with ADHD and, and autism. Um, but it's that kind of thing that in everyday life, I think the most empowering thing for people, and I mean, I've even made a course on it now and teach people this and coach, um, is really to learn about your neurodivergence and how to set up the world around you and how to help others understand you and support you and embrace you. Like I think far more than ever hacking or curing or fixing or overcoming <laughs> There's such parallels, I think, Annie, with the the hack vibe with the diet space generally of diet culture, loss, yeah. Right. Like this is the solution. If I can just yeah. get all my ducks in a row and conform. Yeah. And the sustainability yeah. issue is still the same. The life quality issue is still the same. The and life- always ignored. <laughs> totally. Like yeah. the individualization of your needs as an individual, just completely off the table. Totally. I'm curious in your own journey to an ADHD diagnosis, which you touched on is so important that that in itself is a privilege. Yes. Also, some people might not want, need it. It might just be something that they understand of themselves. How was your kind of, could you walk us through, did you did you just know? Did you suspect? Yeah, um, absolutely not. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I was diagnosed uh, at 28. Uh, how old am I now? I think I'm almost 32. There's been four years. and. Um, 
it was a very long time coming. I had no idea. Um, I went into my biggest burnout when I was two years into full-time work at 23 years old and I was put on stress leave um, and diagnosed with anxiety and depression and then was in a car accident (laughs) while I was on stress leave. Um, And then the the subsequent four years, I was in and out of work, in and out of surgeries, in and out of psychologist's offices. And then finally I hit, I think, my fourth pain specialist and then, yeah. And then finally I, yeah, it was, I think it was my fourth pain specialist. Um, and he said, we've done everything now. We've tried everything. Something's happening in your brain. You need to see a psychiatrist. And I was like, okay, <laughs> fine. And and it's actually surprised me that I hadn't seen a psychiatrist before that. I'd seen quite a few psychologists, um, but never been sent to a psychiatrist. So at that point we were starting to suspect PTSD, um, post-traumatic stress disorder and from the car accident and uh, sexual assault the year before um, when I was at work. And I got diagnosed with PTSD. And when I started researching it, um, I started to see a link between ADHD symptoms and PTSD, mostly in trying to like unpack it and say that they can look very similar, but have different like roots and, you know, ADHD stuff you tend to have from birth. PTSD symptoms will develop after a trauma, uh, any trauma. Everyone responds differently to traumas. doesn't have to be the worst trauma in the world. I learned that the hard way <laughs> and you can still be traumatized. <laughs> anyway. Um, and so, yeah, that's what made me deep dive into ADHD in women and how different it looks to what we, we, may, we might know as a stereotype little seven-year-old boy jumping off the walls in a classroom who's hyperactive, which was not me. Uh, and, yeah, when I went into an official diagnosis, I was very lucky that my GP had sent me to a psychiatrist who was very specialised, especially in autism and ADHD. And he did the assessment and he's like, so what do you, what do you think you have? And I was like, well you know, anxiety, depression, PTSD, and I'm pretty confident I have ADHD combined. And he's like, oh yeah, um, what else? And I was like, is that a trick question? <laughs> like, seriously, what, <laughs> what's coming? Um, and yeah, and he told me I was also autistic, which I didn't really understand because I hadn't looked into it much, which really blows my mind. There's so much in the ADHD space that doesn't mention autism or even claims autistic traits for ADHD. Uh, and yet the co-occurrence is huge. You, you've, we've only been allowed to be diagnosed with both for less than 10 years now. And before that, it had to be whichever one was like more obvious. I had to choose um, box, Yeah. Yeah. And some of the latest statistics are saying it's as high as like a 70% overlap. Um, most people I coach, uh, who I mostly focus more on the autistic side of things, but they're also majority of them are also ADHDs. <laughs> um, yeah. So I do like to mention that even though I'm happy to focus on ADHD um, or autism, whatever anyone wants, I, I flip between and I, they're very in, over, like they're very interlinked as well. It's quite hard to pull them apart. Um, but anyway, yeah, so it was, it was a long process, but, um, it was amazing. Like getting that diagnosis was just, it gave me all the answers that I'd been desperate for and no one was giving. Uh, it just explained a lot about everything in my life and me. <laughs> so you found um, it, is it fair to say, empowering to have, yeah. have a diagnosis and more understanding of yourself? Mm, yeah, I think the the diagnostic process itself and what we understand of a diagnosis of ADHD and autism is not empowering, <laughs> but the validation of getting a diagnosis and the access to disability services that it gave me and understanding and accepting myself, that was empowering. Um, so I do think there's definitely a place for diagnosis, um, but it's also, again, not super accessible and a privilege. Yeah, but um, the best part of it is, and a lot of late diagnosed autistic ADHD will say, is that it just helped them understand themselves to an extent that it almost gives you like – you know, we were talking about hack culture and stuff before, but it, it almost gives you permission to stop fighting against your natural tendencies. Um, and and initially I didn't do that actually. I spent the first probably 12 months post-diagnosis diving into like quote unquote early intervention and seeing a bunch of different therapy therapists like OTs and speech pathologies mm-hmm. and more psychs um, because I was 
very much in the state where I'm like, oh, now I know what's wrong. I can fix it, right? Which many of us go through. Um, but very, very quickly I learned that that wasn't working <laughs> um, and that I didn't want to waste my entire life continuing to fight to change myself and be different, um, which I'd already done with weight and I'd already done, you know, on those um, with neurodivergence. Yeah. So I, I, I hit a point where the more I did research and, and started listening to much more diverse voices from very intersectional backgrounds, um, listening a lot more to the neurodivergent community rather than maybe the pathology side of it, which the first 12 months I really dived into reading a lot of research articles, attending conferences, um, mostly virtual. Really? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's like, it's not fun. It's the, the way that they talk about, especially autism, but even ADHD is, is super pathologizing. Um, so it's just easy oh. to naturally get that un- unconscious bias, right? Yeah. So really then I started to shift and, and think, well, what if I did this crazy thing and just accept my differences? Hello, what would happen? Yeah. Hello. hello, compassion. Hello, acceptance. Yes. Um, and hello, spending that energy that I was wasting instead of trying to change myself and fix myself, quote unquote, um, I started spending it on figuring out strategies and services I could access to just supplement and help anything I struggled with. And it completely changed my life. And it's exactly why I've done what you everything I've had. <laughs> I've done in the last 12 months. I've done more in the last 12 months than I have probably in my whole adult life. <laughs> you are um, a busy human being. <laughs> yeah, I am. And I'm I'm not better. I'm not less autistic. I'm not less ADHD. I haven't hacked them. I am still very much exactly the same person I was before. The only difference is now I just go with that flow <laughs> and I I acknowledge my struggles and I let them be supported, but I also acknowledge my strengths and I let them not be dismissed because I'm too focused on the struggles. Mm -hmm. And I also acknowledge that the reason that I even have these disorders is because society is set up for different brains, not because there's anything wrong with mine. Yeah, the deficit is a societal deficit, really. It's not. Yeah. Yeah. Same with fatness. Like I'm a fat woman, proudly fat. Uh, I use fat in a neutral way and uh, I do a little bit of, of the fat advocacy stuff just because it overlaps with eating disorders and all that stuff. Um, but there's nothing wrong with being fat, surprisingly. And if you are hearing that and thinking there is, I urge you to do more research and check your unconscious bias because we've all got it. Fat phobia is so, so real. Um, and everyone, you can't live in this society and not have some, at least, if not a lot. Um, and so it's really similar. Like the minute I gave up on diet culture and accepted that my body was just going to be bigger, my, my life also changed (laughs) with that angle as well, because instead of wasting all my time and energy on every diet under the sun and just, yeah, I finally just got to exist and do everything that I was not letting myself do because I wasn't the right size or people would judge me or whatever. I wear shorts now. I know we were talking about that uh, yes. earlier this year together. What a whole other experience that it yeah, is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what has it been like, and maybe there's been different iterations of this, but yeah. your experiences or the the crossover, I guess, of knowing ADHD is positioned and you said also definitely autism is positioned this way, but possibly within communities less so, maybe, maybe externally, Mm. but less so about fixing and about deficit and about, you know, there being something to overcome here in terms of conforming to neurotypical kind of world and society. Yeah. When it comes to eating, obviously being my expertise, I see this so much where someone arrives with the assumption they need to figure out everything out themselves first of all that they're wrong they can't get it together yeah. they can't eat they but this is inextricably linked also to anti-fatness to ableism to healthism to diet culture right and oh, I know yeah. like how's your journey been in that space was it was it radically supportive to get to that point as you said of what if I accept what if I have compassion what did that do to your eating experiences even understanding them yeah, so uh, it was an interesting like timeline for me because I had hit the point of 
ditching diet culture quite a while before I discovered I was autistic and ADHD. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, But I still hadn't really worked out that I had an eating disorder, which I've had since probably late primary school, if not early high school. Um, And I didn't realize that until after I was diagnosed with autism and ADHD because I started to see a link between eating because I was obviously still looking into the eating space and doing work on body acceptance and body positivity and fat liberation. And you'd already entered there. Yeah. I'd already entered there. So anything that linked the two, I was like, Ooh, interesting. Um, and very quickly discovered, uh, that I absolutely did have an eating disorder, um, which surprisingly wasn't binge eating disorder. Like I had suspected, um, for quite a while, but sort of not looked into much, um, because every time I'd seen a doctor, which I'd seen a lot of in those few years of chronic pain and health issues, they had very quickly made assumptions about my life and my eating and movement and diet um, before really actually asking. So if I ever expressed that I occasionally would eat too much, they would jump to the fact that I would basically that's binging and I need to go on another diet and just throw another diet in my face. Um, I even actually went to, and I've never publicly spoken about this, not just because no one's really brought it up, but um, I I was um, in the obesity management service, uh, OMS. It's like a public um, health thing. I think it was, I don't even remember what year, it must have been like 2016 or 17. Um, I was there for a few months and they actually didn't even have a psych on at the time because that psych was on mat leave and they didn't f- like fill her role. <laughs> they didn't backfill it, which is mind blowing because it's like the only one that mattered. Um, <laughs> and um, I I was at that point, this was before I'd given up on diet culture. I was desperate. Right. And these doctors were like, well, we've given you all these diets and you've succeeded and then consequently failed again because <laughs> that happens. Right. Weight cycling and you can't, none of them are sustainable. And um Yeah. And so I I agreed to do this OMS service thing. And I remember I was very much considering having gastric sleeve surgery. um, And they were all supportive of that. Most people that went through there, they supported them through that process, but they wouldn't let me because my diet wasn't good enough. And by good enough, I mean, the only real comment I got on the diet that I gave them, and I say gave them because I never gave them the truth. I gave them what I thought they wanted to hear which is often, and also I'm a high masker, so it's kind of a story with me. Anyway, um, they the comment I got was, you should have a quarter and not half of an avocado. Mm, really? Really? <laughs> um, and really the truth was is I wasn't eating enough, and when I would eat, it would be not the healthiest options. Um, and I was really ashamed of that, and I didn't want to share that. And I thought I was almost countering it by eating less because that's still a calorie deficit, but eating what I liked because I had sensory seeking and avoidance tendencies with food. Um, but they they were like, oh, we need, we're going to put you on like these shake things. And if you can do that, maybe we'll look at surgery. Anyway, I didn't like the shakes. So I ended up ditching them. Thank goodness. <laughs> um, because that was right before my big awakening where I really dived into food psych podcasts and Christy Harrison and got into, you know, reading books like um, uh, Fearing the Black Body and just the incredible advocate, uh, um, activism going on uh, in the fat liberation and body advocacy space. It was just, it was a big turning point for me. And I'm just so glad that I didn't have really super long-term damage. <laughs> um, yeah, because I, I actually know quite a lot of um, autistic people and a lot of ADHD people that have had the gastric surgery and majority of them have had very severe consequences. Um, one or two haven't, but like that, I mean, the odds. Yeah. Across all folks. Yeah. That's stats yeah. All. Oh, that's true. It's not just them, but yeah, exactly. But oh. my point, I guess, in saying specifically to ADHD and autism um, is that generally, and this is why I talk about a lot in the eating space is that, Many of us have sensory needs around food, whether that's avoiding or seeking or sense, uh, hypo or hypersensitive um, to flavors and tastes and textures. Um, and we also tend to have um, other things that impact our eating, like um, interoception struggles, where we 
we don't read our body signals very well or um, time blindness or, you know, hyper-focus where we forget to eat and, and we starve and we binge and we think that we have a binging problem, but really we just have a regular eating problem that we can't do because of the other stuff. Like, um, So it's really complicated. And the thing is, if you put one of us through that surgery, you're still going to be living in that same body and brain afterwards. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, except now you're going to have like, no stomach and a lot more problems. <laughs> amputated digestive organs. Yeah. Organs. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, not a fan of that. <laughs> Zero out of 10 for that option. If that's Zero. Um, or negative yeah. if you're allowed. <laughs> I, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I was thinking about what you said of, of imagining someone arriving like, and, and that's the advice. So like, I I'm just imagining, and I'm, I wonder how many people resonate with this experience of, they even as an individual may identify, as you said, as, oh, I must be binging. Like this this must be my issue. Yeah. And we can't obviously ignore that exists in the context of so many problematic narratives about food and bodies and eating. But I can imagine, just like you face, this assumption, all of these assumptions that someone might navigate and the focus is probably on so-called binging. Yeah. So let's say, let's say less is, is, is one of the, as you you know, pointed out, whilst that is absolutely not the the path to take or a solution to take, but it's an understandable so-called fix. I, I can't even imagine how many additional layers of harm are caused in that exact scenario. Yeah. And yet again, what we're actually needing to look at is what supportive environments and structures can someone find themselves in? Yeah. Even if we're just talking about eating regularly, like even just that. Yeah, long- absolutely. Absolutely. I was just uh, in an interview earlier today and my alarm went off at midday, which is goes off every single day uh-huh. of my life to tell me to eat lunch because otherwise I will forget. Totally. Um, and that has been life-changing for me. Just mm-hmm. that simple little strategy. like um, Because, yeah. Uh, no. Not have that be focused on, supported, encouraged. Because, again, if we're also talking about whatever size body someone's in, but if there's also an anti-fat just sentiment and lens, that's why a health professional might be so poo-pooey on any kind of so-called binge behaviour, which, again, I would challenge is mostly not binge behaviour, is mostly yeah. just very normal response to not eating enough food behaviour. Yes, agreed, right? completely. Like disordered binge relationship. And even then, mm. I'm not even sure I buy that label either, to be honest. Neither, neither deficit part of it I mean yeah yeah absolutely I think um I mean this is this is such a hot topic for the stuff that I do because um neurodivergent people and I say neurodivergent just because it's easier than saying autism and ADHD but neurodivergent is more than autism and ADHD just to be clear but that's my area (laughs) (laughs) um but yeah yeah the neurodivergent I mean um we we tend to have differences in our eating and a lot of the time that's pathologized when it doesn't necessarily need to be. Um, so like when you look at kids, um, if you've got a kid who's a really picky eater and, you know, not eating enough vegetables, all of a sudden, you know, parents are thinking, oh, you know, it's going to affect their health. It's my responsibility to make them eat better. Um, you know, and the advice that is generally given around that is very neuronormative advice, like sit at the dinner table, no distractions, blah, 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 blah. But for many of us, um, sitting at the dinner table is a social pressure and demand. Um, and having no distractions is actually even worse for our sensory needs. And if anything, to be able to eat better, sometimes we just need to be watching our favorite show or reading a favorite book or maybe not sitting at the dining table needing to have conversations because we're spent from the day and all the social demands that we've already had to go through. Um, Dinner tables growing up for me was my worst nightmare. Like I love my family very much and I have two older brothers and an amazing mom and dad, but I could not ever cope with family dinners. They usually ended up me running off crying to my room. And it was mostly because I spent every ounce of energy every day going to school and trying to be normal. And so I'd get home and I would explode. And my parents just thought she's a drama queen, like, Mm. you know, because they only had boys to compare and my brothers were, you know, little geeks (laughs) Um, (laughs) who I love and I'm pro geek. So um, (laughs) yeah, I'm I'm definitely also a geek. Like quite a destabilizing, like unsafe, you know, and and by that I mean our nervous system detecting that. Oh yeah. Fight or flight, freeze, fawn. Yeah. hundred percent. It was yeah. Hugely problematic. 
Now we have to eat this way. Or as you said, like veg has to come in, you know, and, you know, I, I, I feel I can totally understand what you're saying about how early this could start, whether someone identifies or understands how their brain is working or not, or their care can understand or not. Yeah. Yeah. I can see how that almost imprinting a food relationship impact is so early. Yeah. And because diet culture and healthism are just so pervasive, mm-hmm. um, it can get, it can be as little as um, a lot of autistic people really like repetitive behaviors, sameness. Um, uh, one of them for me and a lot of people with food is eating the same meal over and over. And um, from a health perspective, a lot of parents or even adults will look at that and go, well, that's not healthy because you're not getting variety and meeting your nutritional needs, which is not wrong, but it's also not necessarily a reason to change it. Mm-hmm. If that is making them eat anything uh, yeah, something, <laughs> or making their mental health better, um, maybe all we need to do is give them some supplements or multivitamins or whatever they need, keep track of stuff because that's what they need in life. And this is the the kind of ableist and accessible angle that I try and educate health professionals on in, in the eating disorder and eating and feeding space is that because this stuff isn't taught, because there is still such a very, very basic understanding of neurodivergent minds, bodies, um, especially in these areas um sometimes and oftentimes the traditional ways that we treat um these eating problems are so harmful to my community um just because you don't know any better and you don't realize that you're making it worse and i say that because we have some of the highest rates of uh uh, anxiety (laughs) well that too but um we have yeah um we have some of the highest rates of anorexia um and bulimia and binge eating with ADHD. The others more for autism, but there's overlap. Yeah. And, and I think, um, a big risk of that, especially from a young, probably more female or gender diverse person, because there's all those other layers there, um, of oppression and everything. Um, but from a young age, if you've got these eating differences, you hit a point where, you know how like in late primary school, early high school, a lot of girls go through like this change where they gain a bit of weight and then they hit puberty. In that that period, what often happens, and it happened to me, but it also this is proven by the research and well known, um, that is the point where a lot of parents go, uh-oh, we, we need to do like something about our daughter's food. Control this, right? Right? Rather than just sitting back, letting it be, and it'll sort itself out because that's puberty, <laughs> um, diet culture rears its ugly head and, and well-meaning, well-loving parents do this. Mine did it and they, God, I'm so lucky to have the greatest parents in the world. And they are so sad that they didn't know these things um, and caused harm. And so and education is so powerful. But in doing that, you've just gone from putting a potentially autistic ADHD child and most, you know, 80% of autistic girls are not diagnosed when they leave high school um the rates for adhd in women and diagnosis is also ridiculous um so you won't really know (laughs) generally it's getting slowly better but um the harm that can be caused from these things is so bad and all of a sudden you go from i occasionally miss miss meals back then um because of you know distraction and interoception which i didn't realize obviously and then all of a sudden it became like a micro focus of you know why is she skipping meals is there is it because she wants to be thin is that an issue or um why is she so hungry in the evening uh is that a binging thing she's putting on weight uh oh um let's like control her. I got put on my first diet at, uh, I think I was in grade six. Um, and yeah, I just, I wish we could like shake people and be like, wake up, stop unintentionally causing harm. Yeah. I I mean, absolutely. I think for the most part caregivers, it is unintentional. It is so unintentional. I I haven't met a parent that doesn't love and want the best for their child. Um, absolutely. But that doesn't mean that it's not all of our responsibility to learn and know better Absolutely. Yeah. Now, now that we can. I wonder if I could 
get your take on something that we kind of said we would dig into and I it has clearly been grinding my gears a lot recently yeah you talked about this really natural and I think that's new for a lot of like so if someone's newly diagnosed this idea of oh yeah I don't maybe have the best body connection or those signals get a little bit lost or as you said earlier what I would often see is the focus is just not there necessarily it's not being conducive to be there yeah yeah yeah. Then there's those other layers of why it also on top of neurodiversity, my why it might not have been there or encouraged, I guess. Is yeah, yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. let's change our body, let's ignore our body, let's not trust and listen to it. So of course there's lots of bits here. Yeah. And then I think we also have to acknowledge very importantly that you talked about like the productivity industry of sorts, which is really like beautifully packaged capitalism, right? Oh, yeah. We're all, I think, just generally traumatised living in that anyway. I agree. And not honouring and acknowledging that, generally speaking. Like, it's shit and it's hard and we're just trying to do our best. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But if you're also, I imagine, navigating, like, for instance, as I commonly hear, that I had something to do for work. Work was, you know, I I couldn't stop. That My reminder came up, Nadia, but I couldn't stop. That speaks so much to also how important it is. It's so hard to prioritize self. Mm-hmm. Full stop. Oh yeah, for and everyone. then these kind of other layers. So I guess coming back to the idea of where are you seeing mostly, and and what are your kind of I guess thoughts on the idea people kind of can latch onto of I chase dopamine, I chase. So if I have ADHD, I want this because I'm chasing dopamine. I'm chasing dopamine and could we kind of like dig into a little bit about what maybe some of the problematic ideas of that are? Mm-hmm. Like my my take, and obviously I don't have this lived experience, but my take of seeing people arrive to me is they haven't been given tools or supported to find regular eating full stop. Agreed. Totally. But their message is I'm chasing dopamine. It's and such an I- easy cop out like pathologization of a behavior that's the problem meanwhile is there also anti-fatness that you've faced probably Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and also like is is eating a little extra a binge or like right and also are you binging because you're binging or because you starve yourself regularly and then maybe again don't have tools and capacity to know how to regularly eat yeah right exactly um so many good points i First of all, I think it's a misconception that ADHD is purely a dopamine deficiency thing. Um, I think that's simplifying what and still our brain is. Aspect, would you say as well? Like still um, focus of- Yeah, sure. I mean, you can argue the deficit language um, left, right, and center because, you know, on a literal sense, you know, we are different and we are sure. deficient comparatively to what we consider typical. Um, but f- that when you include like a social um, justice lens uh, and an intersectional lens, it's it's more complicated. Um, but I mean, I, for, I'm not a medical professional, so <laughs> I'm not going to comment on like the deficit language in terms of do we have less dopamine? I don't really give a shit. <laughs> like that's irrelevant. That's point, right? You know what I mean? Like, why does it matter? <laughs> Yeah, and, and like at the same time, the focus, right? like yeah. just I think people are so desperate for answers. Like it's similar to why we're so um, vulnerable to diet culture because those answers are so easy to latch on to um, and, and usually, sorry? The black and white, right? The, yeah, the black and white. Yeah, exactly. And like this is the answer and this is my, explains all my problems, right? Um, and also I think often people who do, for example, um, like to use to say like, oh, my autism's horrible or my ADHD is annoying and terrible and bad. Um, Oftentimes that's like internalised ableism and and, and we've all had it. I I definitely still have it to an extent. Um, Similar to fat phobia, you can't really ever get fully rid of it in my opinion, (laughs) even though I'd love to. You you approach it differently, right? Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, But it's really easy to blame those things, right? And especially when you're like trying to, maybe get help or finances, it's easy to be like, that's the problem. But really the problem is not usually that. It's usually the society you live in, the um, norms that are being put on you, the judgments around you, the culture, 
Mm-hmm. Uh, it's so much more complex. And so I really try to help people understand the external factors that are far more important than anything that's different or wrong or right or whatever about them. Um, okay. And so with ADHD and dopamine, and I guess probably more the binge aspect is that I think it's almost dangerous to have that message because it really quickly can let people latch onto that being the problem. And oftentimes it's not. Mm-hmm. Um, oftentimes it's things like they're not aware that their distraction, their distractibility or hyperfocus yeah. is affecting their regular eating. And so even though they binge every night when they get home, it's actually because they haven't eaten enough during the day and that's the body's natural response to famine. Totally. Um, and it's not a dopamine seeking thing at all. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, that's yeah. a very human response. Very human. I think that it's a really potentially problematic thing to to just blame it all on the dopamine and say it's dopamine seeking because even though there is maybe a little chance that it is, I'd say more often than not there's other stuff happening in the background and other stuff that needs to be identified and potentially supported, not necessarily changed or fixed, but just brought attention to and made you know potentially accessible adjustments for yeah like my alarm that goes off to tell me to eat you know um but oftentimes that doesn't happen and so the ADHD meds that I'm on specifically which is Vyvanse is also a medication used for binge eating disorder and I I suspect that many people who get put on it for binge eating are probably undiagnosed ADHDers but that's just my speculation (laughs) Um, (laughs) <laughs> yeah, but it, it, there's a the problem with it is because it, basically it's an appetite suppressant. Mm. Uh, that's not all it is, but it does ap- suppress your appetite. Yeah, and that's actually it can almost be really dangerous when you've got someone who's a binge eater, or even not like any kind of different eating, because if you already were struggling to eat regularly or enough, yeah. and then binging in the evenings, that is not going to help. Like, yes, potentially it will to an extent. And usually people lose quite a bit of weight in the first six months uh, and then it plateaus for most people. Um, But the medication generally wears off in the evening and so people can get back into that binge cycle and and it can get worse because not only have they not eaten in the day as as usual, maybe they've eaten even less um, because it is so easy to forget. Um, and if the signals like interoception is maybe lower on top of, like if there's lots of things happening, well, exactly. There's so many layers to what could be going on. Um, and again, it's just like putting a bandaid on an infection instead of addressing what's really going on, but that's very pathologizing, but it's a good example of just like not getting to the root thing that needs help (laughs) or support. That's kind of full circle, right? Of this discussion of, that, you know, for you, I know it, it's, and that's why you are the founder of Neuro Accessibility, right? This idea of what it is to have access and support and and it, whatever that looks like, if that's a strategy, if that's a tool, if that's a pop-up, like a lot of my clients use or posties or, you know, yep. post-it notes or, but all coming from a place of, I deserve this, I need this, this is to help me thrive as best I can within oppressive systems that don't necessarily have my best intentions in mind. Yeah, yeah. And it's such a whole other, like I get the sense that this discussion will be a very new concept for a lot of people who yeah, who, who live with ADHD, who have, who have yeah. that as part of themselves. Absolutely. You're, I'm, I'm in the disability advocacy space quite a bit. And so there's a thing called, um, which some people might not be familiar with, um, we live in a world where the medical model of disability is the, the main system that we live in. And that is where we see health problems and differences um, as something that needs to be fixed and cured. Um, And a lot of people in in disability advocacy, including myself, are pushing towards the social model of disability, or in my case, I also like the human rights model of disability. Um, And the social model of disability is is basically um, talking about how it's a social it's it's more than just that health condition or impairment or whatever you want to call it it's a societal thing it's a human thing um and we need to start acknowledging that there are more factors as to why people are disabled than just whatever they've got going on so for instance if everyone was in a wheelchair people in wheelchairs wheelchair users wouldn't be disabled because the world would be made for them but they are 
yeah, like the world. It's is- disable them. Yeah. So I'm disabled and I prefer identity first language. Um, we still quite often see person first used, especially in disability. Um, but the deaf community actually le- are really doing a lot of work leading identity mm-hmm. first language and autism is quite close behind. Uh, we're trying to push for autistic and not being a quote unquote person with autism, but um, example if someone's not familiar. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. They don't know the terms. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So the social model and really what I'm, I love the social model and a lot of people will say that the medical model needs to be thrown in the bin. Um, I would like to say that, but I also don't think that it's as black and white as that because for example, no, it's not right. <laughs> Actually, it's a big, it's a red flag for me if I hear people saying talking in like ultimates or absolutes and absolutes. That's the word. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, so, uh, for example, I I take medication for my ADHD, um, and it life changing. So does my partner. Um, he actually forgot his the other day at work. Um, he went to work without it, and he came home and said, "I don't know how I used to function." And I was like, "Yeah." Yeah. It's true. <laughs> yeah, it's so helpful. It's so helpful. I I went off it when I was pregnant with my son, um, and it was awful. Um, the medication helps me in so many ways. It's it doesn't always help people. Um, everyone's different. Um, but that is a part of the medical model. If we didn't have the medical model that was trying to find ways for people to, in some ways, to yeah, exactly, to make the impairments less problematic or whatever you want to call it then I wouldn't have that. So I'm not completely against it, but I am against it in the sense of it shouldn't be in a vacuum. And I think that the social model is the reality that it's just a little part of that and the social model's the bigger picture. Yeah, yeah. Although I don't like puzzles because that's uh, autism speaks and the autism community are not. (laughs) Not, yes, absolutely. uh, But, I I mean, it's annoying because the term puzzle piece is actually really quite helpful, but um, I actually just, hate puzzles in general. So it's interesting. Oh, there you go. <laughs> I like puzzles. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. So <laughs> yeah. Well, so um, uh, the place that uses that as their symbol is autism speaks um, and they are the leading organization in, in the world that right. actively is trying to cure autism and speak. Placing autism as a, as a problem. Essentially. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and it's absolutely does not, mm-hmm. um, does not promote or listen to autistic voices and lived experience. And it simplifies our different brains as a puzzle to be put together, like we're some Hence. complex problem to be solved. We're not. <laughs> um, we're just human and different like everyone else. What would you love for someone who has ADHD to hear? And I guess I should maybe add, yes, yeah, someone's struggling, you know. Someone yeah, no, that's why I'm thinking that. Loving their, ADHD, <laughs> loving their brain. Yeah, who, who's fed up. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and, and that's actually, I like that you asked that because it's something that I I often forget to mention just because it's just not relevant to my brain. But uh, it was back in the day is um, I'm not for the superpower language. Um, I don't think that being an ADHD or autistic is a superpower. I also don't think that it's terrible. <laughs> I think that we, every human has strengths and weaknesses and challenges. Like um, that's just the reality. And, and so when I talk about how that there's nothing wrong with these things, I don't mean that the struggle isn't real. I don't mean that you don't deserve help. And I don't mean that you don't need a diagnosis. <laughs> the, all those things absolutely are helpful and a privilege and needed often. Um, And I am glad I got them myself. (laughs) But what I do mean is you don't need to prove how broken you are to deserve help. So I want to reiterate three key things to summarize this fascinating critical conversation with Annie. So one, ADHD isn't a pathology to overcome as our medical model positions it. And as Annie says so poignantly, your struggles are real and they matter. You just don't need to be this so-called broken to receive and deserve support. The second point, if you have been diagnosed with or you self-identify as having ADHD and you struggle with eating, this is valid and this deserves support and... My final summary, number three, not getting to the root of the support and access that it can actually help you as an individual thrive might be an obstacle that you're facing. Again, hint, hint, the medical model might be a big part of that. 
So at the core, this support might be receiving compassionate guidance to untangle yourself from your own internalized ableism. As Annie again says, of course we have this. How could we not? We all are affected by these systemic ideas. And in fact, you know, untangling the way that you've possibly been taught to blame your beautiful brain working just perfectly as it is, but also all the intersections that come up, you know, healthism and anti-fatness. So at the core, could that first level of support be about untangling yourself from those ideas and seeing them as what they are? So my initial approach with clients is neurodiversity affirming in that it's important for everyone, no matter how your brain functions or not. This first exploration is always going to be, are we regularly eating enough food? That's it. Everyone that's ever worked with me knows that is that is key. And this is so important that if it's not happening, what's in the way of it? Not because there's something wrong with you, not because you're not doing it right. Maybe because you don't have capacity, you don't have the right support in place. Maybe you're not even sure, again, hello diet culture, that it's so important. Maybe there are lots of obstacles in your way. And so together we can resource how to find this core supportive behavior and foundation of life for you. So it's at this point, as you might have really detected in our exploration, that this so-called dopamine chasing and binge eating often fall away when they've actually been a very natural response to not eating enough food and not having enough regular nourishment for a variety of reasons. And if they don't fall away, that's also okay. Together, we explore the root of what you need. Bottom line, medicated or not, interoception difficulty or not, so that's your body sensations and and really the connection you have to those and your cues in your body. Whether you have any of that going on or not, you are not stuck and you deserve compassionate, valuable support. I added an additional resource to this episode. If you want to dig a little bit more into the ADHD industrial complex, as it's termed, which Annie and I do touch on into this episode, I've included a link in the notes to a different podcast called Disorderland, brilliant podcast, and there's a specific episode that digs into this idea. For all of the links and notes from today's exploration of ADHD and eating, including how to find Annie and her incredible work head to my website, nadiafelsch.com forward slash podcast. Alternatively, you'll find the link in your podcast player. Thank you for joining me. See you next time.